This is an ABC podcast. What kind of experience gives you nightmares? Falling out of a plane? Fire near your home? A frightening prognosis? But what about an experience you go to willingly? This one you're about to hear gives me the screaming abdabs. Going deep into a cave, crawling through narrow passages through which you barely fit, and hearing flooding water streaming towards you. Think young soccer team in Thailand. But Andreas Klocker from the University of Tasmania does all this for fun and enlightenment. Here he is at the museum in Hobart explaining why. So quite exactly a decade ago, I became obsessed with cave exploration, actually here in Tasmania. People keep on asking me the same question, why? Why would you spend much of your free time in impenetrable and absolute darkness in a wet, cold environment? And then when you have gone your annual leave, you repeat the same again, but in countries far away and for weeks on end. The short answer is, I'm just curious. In my day job, I'm an oceanographer, not the sort of oceanographer most people think of, who spends much of their time going to sea, dropping instrument of the sides of the ship. I spent most of my time in the cubicle, using the number crunching power of one of the world's fastest supercomputers to simulate the ocean circulation. That way you can do exciting science without ever having to leave your desk longer than it takes to walk to the nearest coffee machine. This is very different to science and exploration done in case, challenging my curiosity in a very different sort of way. Just think of it from an exploration point of view. When you want to discover new places in the 21st century, you're largely confined to the depths of the ocean or the subterranean depth of cave systems. And while advances in autonomous mapping have opened up even the deepest ocean trenches, just send an ocean glider with a camera, there's nothing, no technique like that to actually explore caves. So the only way you have to explore those caves is good old human manual exploration. So if you find out what's there, you actually go yourself and have a look. So what is a cave in the first place? So a cave system comprises a complex web of interconnected passages, canyons, streams, squeezes, rifts. Caves are formed when water flows through tiny cracks in the rock, slowly dissolving away the limestone underneath the Earth's surface, creating underground rivers. When the cave fully becomes submerged with water, and you can only get through with dive gear, it's a place we call a sump. Once described as a place by an eminent cave explorer as God's way of telling you that's where the cave ends. And that's where a lot of cave explorers actually stopped and went back home, said, cave ended. Any science done in caves is inherently linked to exploration because there's only so much we can do to understand those complex systems from the surface. Without actually going into the cave, we can't document the cave, we can't map the cave, we can't take any samples. We wouldn't even know where caves exist. I mean, in 1953, we stood on top of the world, Mount Everest. In 1969, we landed on the moon, and in 2018, we're still looking for the bottom of the world. So nevertheless, some of the most interesting scientific findings in caves have been a prelude to exploration, such as antibiotic-resistant microbes in Le Chugia Cave in the US, or ancient archaeology in the caves of Yucatan. So one of the scientific methods we can use in caves to understand, for example, the formation of caves and the flow path of underground rivers is dye tracing. Dye tracing is just the use of a non-toxic dye mixed with water and a coconut charcoal receptor to capture the dye. It's literally like throwing a bucket of colored water into the top of the cave 
and seeing where it re-emerges. It's quite obvious that the limitation of this method is that we can't observe the underground. We can just predict what happens there. But if we combine the scientific methods with the actual exploration, monitoring the flow of the water underground, monitoring the flow of the dye, we can actually much enhance our understanding of those very complex cave systems. So tracing the flow path of a major cave system was one of the main goals I and 23 other very experienced cave explorers set out to do a bit earlier in this year. The main cave system we aim to study is on the Sistema Watla, which is on the northern end in the Mexican state of Oaxaca. It's a very complex cave system. It's about over one and a half kilometers deep. It's got more than 80 kilometers of cave passages, 25 entrances. And our goal was to understand if and how a nearby cave system known as the Pena Colorada is connected to Sistema Watla. In particular, it has been hypothesized that the seventh sump in this cave five kilometers into the mountain is where the water that sinks in Sistema Wadla is next seen. So the only way to test this hypothesis is to actually travel to Sump 7 to, on the one hand, pour some dye into the sump and see where it re-emerges, and on the other hand, put some divers into the sump who then continue the exploration and mapping of this cave. And putting those two bits of information together, we can hopefully test our hypothesis. So to achieve this, we had to travel five kilometers into the cave, we had to dive through six sumps. So remember, those are those places where we actually only get through with diving and continue exploration sump seven, which is where the map, as we know it, ended. So we had to keep on making the map from that point on. So to travel this distance, both above and below water, and taking into account the limits of human endurance, we used two underground camps. It's very similar to what mountaineers used to scale some of the world's highest peaks. Multiple camps where you work yourself to the first camp, then second camp, to actually get to the summit. Similar works upside down in a cave system. In the end, it took us three weeks until we had enough gear at some seven to actually start our science and exploration efforts. Three weeks of literally just lugging gear around. So after three weeks, we were finally at the point where we could put two divers into the sump to continue exploration. At that point in time, it has been 34 years since the last explorers were there. Years after we have been dreaming about the sump, and now it was finally time to figure out where this sump is actually going. On the one hand, we were really excited. On the other hand, we were really nervous because we put so much effort into getting there that we really did not want to mess up. Sadly, that excitement soon turned into disappointment when Chris and Connor started their first dive and after navigating a tricky part in some seven, got a dead end where a pile of collapsed boulders just blocked the way on. There was no way past. Very devastating. That was bad news for our expedition, and the long-hoped-for connection between the Cueva de la Peña Colorada and Sistema Watla suddenly fell to pieces. Nevertheless, Zeb, one of my main caving buddies in the US, and myself went back a week later just to have another go, just to make sure. Chris and Connor could have just missed the way on, but sadly, they just did not find the way on. So we got stopped by the same rock pile. And at this point, I was in the cave for eight days, Eight days of no sunlight, and I can guarantee you, you're ready for some surface time and a good cold beer and some sunshine by that point in time. <laughs> so the next day, we started lugging gear out of the cave. I was carrying some gear alone while the others were somewhere else in the cave. In an area known as the Grand Lagoon, deep inside the system, when the silence was suddenly broken by a deafening noise, as the giant water turbines suddenly had been turned on. Normally caves, you hardly hear anything, and it suddenly changed. The only explanation for this noise was that an unexpected downpour on the surface was rapidly filling up that cave system. 
So I got a bit nervous. I pretty much ran towards where the others were working. And when I arrived there, Zeb was just coming up a rope, which was hanging over a vertical drop over the next sump. And he told me immediately, the water level in the sump just came up almost a meter within minutes. And now if you put those two bits of information together, the deafening noise in the cave and the water levels coming up in the sump, you know you got a problem. So we decided to make a stash into safety. All six of us who were still in the cave, further into the cave to an area known as the Whacking Great Chamber. It's cathedral-sized, it's about 100 meters tall, and we knew the water's not going to come up all the way. At least we'll be safe there from drowning. Nevertheless, on the way there, the water levels were rising quickly, and by the time we got there, at the lowest point, we had about 10 centimeters of airspace left between the water and the rock ceiling. So lucky, one of our lucky days. And while we were safe in this vast chamber, we were also a kilometer from our exit without being able to get out. We had four granola bars between the six of us, the wetsuits we were wearing, and one space blanket. Not a lot. The gravity of the situation soon sank in, and privately we all started asking ourselves some daunting questions. How much further is the water going to rise? We didn't know how much it rained outside. When is it going to go down, and how fast is it going to go down? And will we need rescue from the outside, or will we be able to rescue ourselves? Luckily, 69 hours, so almost three days after, once the water levels had dropped substantially, Mirek, one of our Polish guys who was with us trapped in the cave, was brave enough to dive through the remaining bit of flooded passage, holding his breath for about 20 meters to the other side, where he found some dive gear coming back so we could all escape the cave. And then finally, 11 days later, after we left the field house, we finally re returned. Happy, very tired. So we definitely learned a lot from this expedition. Some seven was a dead end. And from the water marks left in the cave after the flood, we learned that some seven was not the source of the water. It was the canyon above. And from the dive we put into the sump, it finally reappeared in several different resurgences in the nearby canyon. This was completely opposite to anything we expected. So we learned a lot about this cave, but there's still a lot more to go. In hindsight, we were also really lucky in that flood. On the one hand, from a scientific point of view, we were able to die trace this cave under flood conditions, which you, should, you can never do because it only happens in a wet season, apparently, when the caves are inaccessible to cavers. And as opposed to the recent flood in Thailand, which many of you would have followed in the media with the team of soccer players trapped in the caves, the water levels in the Pena Curada receded fast enough that we could actually save ourselves rather than being relying on rescue from the outside. Nevertheless, both floods show really nicely how fast water levels in caves can rise and surprise both experienced cavers and novices alike. Thank you. Brave man, Andreas Klocker, an oceanographer with the University of Tasmania, talking at the museum in Hobart as part of the festival there. And if you're in Melbourne and enjoy the splendid program Science Friction, you may like to join Natasha Mitchell for a live recording at the museum there. Starting off on September the 6th, four robust discussions, beginning with Hash Me Too and the Future of Sex, then the Failure of Science in Schools, and much more. They're free, but you need to book. Head to events on the RN homepage for more. And that's at abc.net.au slash rn. I'm Robin Williams.